A quick survey of those in the church today, and you come away realizing that the Word of God is something that really doesn't hold very high regard. Why? We'll answer that next, here on Abounding Grace. Join us. And again, greetings. Welcome to today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. We're continuing our look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Is God's Word really enough? Does the Bible contain and hold for you and I everything that we could possibly imagine and hope for to see us through this life? Now be careful how you answer that. We'll take a look at those answers today on Abounding Grace as we look once again at Colossians 2, verses 18 through 23. Is God's Word really enough? Stick around and find out. Here's Pastor Gary with today's program. He died, was buried, and he rose from the dead. And in him we die to the power of sin, and we rise to the newness of life. And we were dead to the condemning claims of the law of God against us. Verse 14 says that since God has canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Therefore, all of our sins are completely forgiven, and we have been raised to newness of life under Christ's lordship and the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we're dead to the dominion and tyranny of sin and Satan. Verse 15. When he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So we are dead to sin. We are dead to Satan. We are dead to the condemning indictment of the law of God. We are new creatures in Christ with a new life because of our union with him. Now, here's the implication of this. The point is, if you want to keep from being seduced, then remember what you are in Christ and live consistently with the implications of that great experience. And here is the implication in verses 20 through 22. Since all of this is true, we are also now dead to the power in the dictates of man-made religions, man-made worldviews, man-made demands on on our behavior, man-made religious practices. Look at verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, that is, the basic presuppositions that unbelievers normally use as the basis of their thoughts and life. Why? As if you were living in the world, still alive to the world and not dead to it. Do you submit to the world's decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? All of which arise from the commands and teachings of men, not of God. And because that is true, because we are united with Christ, we are not only dead to sin, We are dead to having to live any way of life, any way of worship, any philosophy of life that originates with man. 
Therefore, our consciences should feel no pain or guilt in the repudiation of man-made traditions, man-made demands or on our behavior. The elementary principles of the world and religious practices that originate in the mind of man. And we should feel no more pain for exposing their empty deceptions and their fraudulent claims. Knowing what we are in Christ, we must live consistently with what we are in Him. And whenever we allow ourselves to slip back into feeling conscience-bound the way man thinks and worships and lives in this world, rather than following consistently and courageously the sheer word of Christ, we are relaxing inexcusably and sinfully into slavery to the world. We are denying, beloved, what Christ has made of us. We are compromising our new life under his lordship and the liberty to which Christ set us free. When we let man tell us how to think and how to live and how to worship, when we follow man's traditions and man's rites and rituals, we are saying literally we are not complete in Christ and that there must be something more. Some contribution that must make to complete the power and the wisdom and the knowledge that God has given us. We are saying that Christ has not made sufficient provision for us in doctrine and ethics and worship in his word. And these things then need to be augmented by the traditions and opinions of men. Let me quote to you something I actually quote last week again from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, Being complete in Christ means being dead to the demands of this world, which means that God alone is the Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in any way anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith and worship. God is the only Lord of our conscience because he made it. He cleaned it from evil works by the blood of Christ. He governs it by his word and spirit. Therefore, only God has the prerogative to dictate to our conscience what we must feel duty-bound to perform and perform in his strength. And what a liberating truth that is. This is one of my favorite truths in all the scriptures. It sets you free. Because all we really need. And all we are really conscience bound to obey. Is the word of God. We don't need all those do's and don'ts of fundamentalism. That restrict and distort life. But which are not rooted in God's word. We don't need any of those unbiblical philosophies of man that most Americans today think are essential to understanding life from classical thought to evolution to existentialism. We don't need the principles of socialism or humanism or Marxism pressuring us to advance a welfare state in order to be charitable. We don't need the alleged insights of humanistic psychiatry and psychology to help us understand ourselves and our children and solve all of our problems. We don't need the liturgies and entertainment of many deluded churches to worship God truly and to draw people to our worship services. We don't need to obey without question 
and without a sense of duty the dictates and laws of a tyrannical government in order to be good citizens. That is a liberating thought that Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience. The Christian conscience is free from any feeling of being duty-bound to obey the doctrines and commandments of men that are any way contrary to God's word or beside it in matters of faith and worship. This is the point Paul is making in Colossians 2. Our conscience in all matters of faith, doctrine, ethics, worldview, and worship is subject only to the authority of God's word and is entirely free from having to fill any conscience-bound objection to the traditions and practices of men, no matter how much pressure they use to impose them on us. In other words, all we really need is God's word. In fact, to believe any doctrine or to obey any tradition in faith or ethics or worship that is contrary to or in addition to the word of God out of a sense of duty, is to betray true liberty of conscience. No person on earth has authority to dictate to our conscience whom we must feel duty-bound to obey without question or without hesitation. This would be to allow that person to usurp a prerogative over us that belongs only to our great God. For there is only one lawgiver, who is able to save and to destroy. So beloved God calls us to stand firm. Uncompromising and unyielding for the freedom that Christ died to give us. And never again to subject ourselves to a yoke of slavery to man. And his innovations in theology and ethics. Or to his impositions in the worship and service of our Lord and Savior. Or to his ways of thinking. Or educating or training your children, or staying healthy. We must pray that God would give us a strong sense of duty to stand vigilantly in defense of that liberty, and to steadfastly refuse to submit our liberated consciences to the tyranny of men. It is especially true that Christ shed his precious blood to set us free from the tyranny of men in the worship of God. Are are you willing to live and die in defense of revealed truth? Or are you willing to accommodate yourself to additions to worship that are not found in the Bible and which are popular today in order to keep up with the trends of the time rather than to stand against the tide? If the world and the church today turn against the Bible's sufficient rules for worship, are you willing to stand against the world and the church? When people come to us, from different backgrounds in different churches and ask why we don't have this program or that program. Why we don't do this or that in our worship services. Why we don't do this or that in our church life. Practices that all seemingly successful churches have. Are you able to explain the implications of our completeness in Christ And of the fact that the Bible is all we really need? Or are you intimidated by their questions? The church in America today is being defrauded, as was the church in Colossae in the first century. The church in America is following the traditions, doctrines, views, religious practices, and rites of worship 
that originated with man and are not commanded by Christ in his word. You ask, what are some of these religious practices? I'm glad you asked. I said, it is especially true that Christ shed his precious blood to set us free from the tyranny of man in the worship of God. And the Bible is all we really need in order, in, in our need of God. So what are some of the religious practices and worship services in churches in America today that you can find on just about every street corner in America that give evidence that they are following man and turning away from Christ? Here are just a few. See if you have ever visited a church or belonged to a church that did these things in their worship service. And I'm going to just list the ones that I can think of, but I'm sure there are many, many more that I don't know of. But the one thing all of these have in common is that none of them are commanded by the word of God. You have all these churches doing all these things as if, the word of God was not complete, as if we needed more, as if we are not dead to the traditions of men and the elementary principles of this world. For instance, there are some churches that required prescribed liturgies in public worship that are read from a book of common prayer, and they slavishly follow the church calendar, which calls for sermons and set things on set days and seasons. You have churches that add holy days to the church calendar, such as Christmas and Easter and Good Friday and Lent and Monday, Thursday and Reformation Day. And I'm not saying those days are wrong for you as individuals and families to practice, but worship does not belong on those days. It is not prescribed by Scripture. The use of altar calls in public worship. Where in the Bible does it say in the worship of God to ask people to come forward at the end of a service? The practice of coming forward and kneeling to receive the Lord's Supper from the person officiating. The making of the sign of the cross. The practice of bowing at the name of Jesus. The lifting up of the bread and cup high to exalt it in the Lord's Supper. The use of pictures of Jesus and other icons in public worship. The allowing of women to read the Bible and to preach and lead in prayer and serve communion in congregational worship service. The practice of allowing another person other than the minister of the word to administer baptism and the Lord's Supper. The saluting of the American flag. The saluting of the Christian flag or any other flag in congregational worship. The use of dialogue drama and choreographed dances in public worship, lining up people to be healed by various kinds of, of uh, gestures by the preacher, children's church, where all the church in an, under a certain age go into another room for a service because supposedly what goes on in congregational worship service is irrelevant to them. Youth leading in congregational worship services, processionals and recessionals, where the preacher and the choir and everyone follows a guy carrying a large cross down the aisle before or after the worship service, serving communion on special occasions without the preaching of the word, serving communion at weddings, treating wedding ceremonies as if they are worship services. Now, I think most of us here would all agree that those are not in the Bible. So let's get a little closer to home. 
There is a practice among homeschool people, and I am a homeschool person, among churches that have a strong homeschool emphasis of the father serving his children communion. The father has absolutely no authority in the serving of communion or the admitting of people to communion. That's the work of ordained leaders, not the father. You have some places where the father even baptizes their children. And then you have some churches, and this is probably seeming like a little thing, I know, but nevertheless, it is not commanded in the Bible. Maybe you have been in churches, I have, where the preacher says, we're going to pass out the wine and the bread, and everyone wait until the very end. And this is where the head of the family comes up, grabs a piece of bread, grabs a cup of wine, takes it back to his family, and then at the very end... They get the bread to eat and the wine to drink. And it's the father who serves his family. You're probably saying, well, what's wrong with that? Just one thing. It is not commanded in the Bible. It is an additional regulation to the worship of God. It is ad infinitum and ad nauseum. These are some of the things you see in churches today that show that they have been defrauded by human tradition and have not really believed that everything they need to worship God is in the word of God. So the principle is remember what you are in Christ and live in consistency to that in worship as well as in behavior. Now look at verses 21 through 23. Verse 21, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgences. Now, here's the second thing to remember if you want to keep from being seduced and defrauded. Remember that all man-made ways of life, all man-made demands on behavior, All man-made philosophies and worldliness and all man-made forms of worship are complete failures. Paul labels these human traditions inserted into the worship service of God for what they are. He calls them in our text self-made religion. And I like the King James Version which says will worship. That word means also self chosen world worship or self-imposed ritual, self-created worship, man-made worship practices. It refers to any form of worship that man devises for himself, not commanded by the word of God. The reason I like will worship is because that is exactly what it is. That when you worship according to these things you prefer, these things you want, and the things you think as good and spiritual rather than exclusively by the word of God, it is not God you are worshiping any longer. It is the source of those innovations that you are worshiping, which is your own will. Twice Paul makes the point that these self-made religious practices are all total failures. In verse 8 he says, All of these philosophies are empty deceptions. And now in verse 22, he says that these self-made religious rituals are of no value in man's struggle with sin. These prohibitions like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, none of these originate with the command of God. And rather than making the person that practices them a Christian 
or a better Christian, these self-made rituals and demands have the opposite effect. Rather than making a person truly humble, the Bible says you inflate his ego if you use anything other than what God commands to worship himself. It has the opposite effect of what you want it to have. It doesn't make you a better Christian. It inflates your pride. In other words, man-made practices and traditions in worship completely fail to accomplish what they want to deliver. And what do they want to deliver? What is it that these well-intending people want to deliver to the worshiper? God's blessing on the people who participate. But they just don't achieve that. They may make the person who practices these things feel blessed and feel close to God. But that doesn't mean that he is blessed of God just because he feels close to God. Just feeling something doesn't make it so. You can say, well, I can remember in a worship service where I did all these things and they had this entertainment and this liturgy and it made me feel so close to God. So you can feel close to God and actually be far from him. And that is what our text is saying. It doesn't matter how these things make you feel. The truth of the matter is, when you worship and serve God, according to the traditions of men, it has the reverse effect. It pushes you farther from God and closer to the worship of man. Now, why do these traditions of man and the worship of God in the Christian life totally fail to make those who practice them better Christians? Paul gives us three reasons. He says, first of all, external man-made rules and Negating suppressions of God, given desires and appetites, have absolutely no sanctifying power over a person where the struggle with sin takes place in the heart and the soul of the mind. You, make, you can make all of the stringent external rules that you want to and say you've got to live by them, and you've got to practice them, but none of them have any effect on the center of life where sin takes place. You may have the appearance of spirits of a spiritual person, but Paul said in verse 23, all these severe practices are of no value at all against fleshly indulgences. Have, have you ever looked at a monk or a priest or a nun and said, man, this person must really be spiritual to take vows of perpetual chastity or vows of perpetual poverty and the like? There's no healthy, there is nothing healthy about that. Such vows don't make you a better Christian. They are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. Look at the problems the Catholic Church is in today. By the way, this is a, a little humorous sidebar here. Paul says, why in the world, since you are dead to the elementary principles of the world, do you follow human decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, and don't touch? Now, you may not realize it, but he is being sarcastic here. This is stinging sarcasm. He is using those three prohibitions to summarize man-made rules that people live by who they think they are so important to live by, but they drive you farther away from Christ. Do you remember the old Christian women's temperance union? They fought so long and so hard for total abstinence from liquor. Well, if you remember, 
For decade after decade, the official motto of the Christian Women's Temperance Union was, don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. Not realizing that Hall was making fun of these things. Now this leads us to a vitally important but much neglected truth. That the Holy Spirit does not give the inventions or innovations of man in the worship of God any sanctifying power or spiritual value. Here is why all human traditions are of no value against the flesh, because the Holy Spirit does not give the traditions of men, the inventions and innovations of men in the worship of God, any sanctifying power, and nothing has any value or good effect on the heart and soul without the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Grace.